Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Leonard read the passage that we'll be studying this morning. And if you recall last week, we began to look at kind of a, a, a theme that's going to be driven throughout the remainder of the book of Ephesians. So it's very important that we understand why Paul shifts gears here, what he's, what he's thinking about. And that theme is this, that there was a Jew-Gentile distinction that existed in the world, um, even in the days of the early church. And it was huge throughout all of human history from Genesis 12 on. There was this distinction, there was this separation between Jew and Gentile. And part of it, and this is where it kind of can get confusing, part of it was intentional. Part of it was designed. The separation between Jew and Gentile was designed in the Mosaic law. But part of it just had unintended consequences of human pride. Because they be, the Jews began to see this separation as meaning they were above the Gentiles, that they were more important in God's eyes than the Gentiles, that they were more valuable. We are the Jews, you are the dogs, was kind of the mindset. And remember, even last week, he says, Paul tells these Gentiles and Ephesians, you remember the, the, the Jews called you the foreskins. They called you the uncircumcision. It was this pejorative term describing them. And so we started to look at that last week. And what we're going to see here uh, in today's passage is Jesus is going to do five things. It's, it, we get five actions that Jesus accomplished to come in and be the ultimate mediator. Mediator means what? Taking two warring factions or, or enemy factions and bringing them together. And we're going to see that Jesus accomplished that through his work on the cross. As a review, <clears throat> we saw in Genesis 1 through 11, there were only Gentiles in the world. One type of people, Gentiles. But then in Genesis 12, something happened. Abraham was called by God. God was going to form a new nation through Abraham, introducing the Jewish people and then the rest of the world. <clears throat> Everybody who was a non-Jew was a Gentile. And then we see, as we get into Acts 2, the founding of on the day of Pentecost, all the way through Revelation 3, which is, uh, again, that's a conversation for another time, but the rapture of the church, the day of Pentecost, so the rapture of the church comprises a third group. And that third group, as we saw last week, is the church. Now, that's hard for us who have grown up when we've grown up in the time period we've grown up because we've only known the church. In fact, I would venture to say that if some of you grew up in a Catholic household or maybe even a Lutheran household, you were in church before you even knew what was going on, right? You were getting sprinkled by the priests. I mean, you were, you were going under. I mean, you were, the rites were getting for, for performed on you and all sorts of stuff. And even if you didn't grow up in a Catholic church, mom and dad probably, I mean, you might've been a, a baby dedication in this church at some point, those of you that were born and grew up here, right? And so we've always known the church. This is why this whole concept for us in this day may not really resonate, but for the Gentile of the day, what, was, what Paul wrote about them was so true. And let's just review that from last week. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that was a very real, tangible, understandable description of their existence on planet earth as a Gentile. And so this is why when Paul says that the cross, the work of Jesus Christ breaks down that barrier between Jew and Gentile and that Jews and Gentiles are added to this third group in the same way, no favor shown because of what skin they may have cut off their body or what 
ritual they were observing or what kind of sacrifice they were bringing, but by simple faith in the Jewish promised Messiah, promised all the way from Genesis 3.15, all the way back there, that if you simply put your faith in him, you would be born again and you would be added to the body of Christ in, as the scriptures teach, one new man, the body of Christ. And as we're going to see in chapter three, the mystery, which means this, that this was not revealed in the Old Testament. This is why it's such a big deal. God is doing something brand new in the church, special that hasn't been talked about before in the Old Testament. And Paul is dropping that information on us right now to blow our minds. And it's hard to blow our minds when we think the church has been around forever because it hasn't. And the people who were living during that time, this would have been an incredible incredible truth that would have blown their minds. And this is why when we look at 1 Corinthians 10.32, we see all three. And those are the three groups that exist on the earth today. He says, give no offense either to the Jews, to the Greeks or Gentiles, or to the church of God. And so here's what we've got. We've got three people groups. We've got Jews, unsaved Jews who have never trusted in Christ. We've got unsaved Gentiles who have never trusted in Christ. And then you've got people, Jew or Gentile, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. They are in the church. That's the third group. We can even summarize it more simply. If you want to take the unsaved Jews and unsaved Gentiles and put them in their own category, they are in Adam and believers are in Christ. And those are really the two groups that we worry about. I don't go around looking at you a Jew or a Gentile. I, I don't care. Adam or Christ. That's what have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone? That's what we should be interested in because those are the two families that make a difference. So we're going to look at these five things that Jesus did to accomplish the removal of this separation between Jew and Gentile. How could God take this, this salvation plan and take two groups who are categorically opposed to one another, divided, and, and not only divided, but divided by the Mosaic law, something that God had divinely instituted, created. How could God take all of this and then bring these two people groups into complete unity, into a brand new entity? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Last week, we looked at two things that Jesus did. We find these in verse 14. He has made both one. And again, both there refers to Jew and Gentile. So he's made them in one new man, one body, one church, if you will. And then the second action also in verse 14, which we're going to expand upon now in verse 15, he is said to have broken down the middle wall of separation. This last action that Jesus takes should beg really two questions. How did he break down the middle wall of separation? We should want to know how he did this. He did it, but how did he do it? And then what is the middle wall of separation? We want to identify what it is because obviously God thought it was important enough for Jesus to do this. And so we're going to see in verse 15, it's really clear that the middle wall of separation was a mosaic law. Now, that introduces some other concerns, which we'll kind of talk about as we get there, but just kind of have that in in your mind. But understand that the Mosaic Law, when you think about the Mosaic Law, you read through the Old Testament, it was designed to separate the nation of Israel from every other nation on earth. That was the whole goal. That was the distinctions of the Mosaic Law. And so it begs the question, if, if Jesus Christ, if God the Father is going to create 
one new body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, what's he going to do with this separating wall? How's he going to do this if there's still this separation that exists um, in the body of Christ? And this is what verse 15 is going to explain to us. And what we're going to see is the how, if we want to overly simplify it, and we're, we're, we're working off some definitions of some words, is we're going to see that he rendered the law inoperative. He put the Mosaic law out of business. That's what the word means. And so uh, when we read verse 15, it says this, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And so what we're going to see here is in verse 15, God is going to let us uh, behind the door, behind the closed doors. Bat, we're getting behind the kitchen doors. You know, as some people say, we're going to see how the sausage is made, so to speak, right? We're going we're to get behind and see what he did here and, and, and how did he accomplish this unity, Because this would have been a question that would have come up in the minds of Paul's listeners. How does this work? We've never been unified. We've always sat away from each other when we ate. We don't even eat the same food. How in the world could we be unified? Well, in Jesus Christ, it's possible. And that's what we're going to see because of the actions that he took. This word abolished means to render inactive. It means to render useless or ineffective. Literally, it means to put out of business. Um, those of you that, that, that remember this Greek word, katargeo, it's the same word used in Romans 6.6 6 that says that, that God, through our co-crucifixion with Christ, has rendered our sin nature, the power of sin, inoperative in our life. That he's put it out of business. The same word, the same word used here about Jesus as it relates to the Mosaic law. He's abolished it. In fact, when we look at the, the Mosaic law, one of the things we've got to understand is it was designed to separate. Not in a bad way, not in a condescending way, but it was designed to take this nation that God was going to take them by the hand, do everything for, put them up as a light shining on the hill so that every Gentile nation would look at them and say, how does their crops come in so big and so sweet and so juicy and they don't even work seven days a week? They take off the seventh day. How does that happen? Not only that, they were designed to be looked at. The Israelites were supposed to take off what? The seventh year, the entire year. Could you imagine being a Gentile nation, looking at a nation and they're just partying and vacationing for an entire year? They're not working in the fields? I know, sign me up for that one, right? I mean, and, and, and God would provide double the amount of food in year six so that they could take the year off. And that was designed to grab the attention of the Gentile nations. And as they begged and pleaded and slaughtered their children to their false gods to give them rain and to give them a harvest. And then they look up on the hill and they say, this God is providing everything for them. When they sin, when they make a mistake, they're not killing their kids. They're killing sacrificial lambs. The lambs die in their place. There's a, there's a fellowship design there. And then he provides everything. When they need rain, he gives them rain. When they need sun, he gives them sun. He does everything for him and he does everything well. That's how they were designed to be. This is why in Matthew 5, I know it's the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is talking to his disciples in the group. He's talking to Israel here. Matthew 
Maybe I should get to Matthew 5 if I'm going to read that. Mark 5 doesn't say the same thing. Matthew 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, speaking to Israel. But if, it, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Now we use that as a principle for the church age. We understand that, but, but contextually that's designed for Israel. And not only that, their good works were designed to do what? Glorify them or glorify God? That's the whole point of the nation, that this separation was designed to cause them to stand out to the other nations and for the other nations to say, you know what? I want your God. How can I have your God? I don't want all these garbage, fake, phony, religious gods that don't do anything for me. They promise everything and they give me a pack, a pile of manure. That's what they give back. Promise me the world and give me a bag of poop. That's exactly what false religion does. That's exactly what Satan does, who's behind false religion. They were designed to shine out, to cause Gentile nations to want to be like them. It's just incredible. The separation that was designed in the Mosaic Law was also designed to protect them from the evil influences of a pagan culture surrounding them. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is found in the law, in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 6. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so you see that there was was a designed separation for the nation, that God might accomplish something in their midst. And oh, by the way, how do you think a Gentile father would feel if a Jewish young boy that that he thought was kind of a a sharp young man wanted to marry off his daughter to this man and the Jews said, no, 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 we can't marry your kind. How do you think that would make a Gentile feel? And you can see why enmity started to develop between these two groups if misunderstood properly. In fact, how would the the Jews have have taken that one passage? Wow, God loves me and he doesn't love them. That's possibly how they, many of them took it. And that is how many of them took it. And so you can see this hostility developing over this really God designed separation and distinction within the Mosaic law. This separation was also designed to set them apart to the Lord for his own special purposes and use, religion, dress, diet. We know the poor Jews, they couldn't have bacon. I mean, I feel sorry for them that, I mean, they are missing out. You throw bacon on anything, it's always better, right? So they were, they had this dietary thing, but, it, but in all seriousness, their dietary laws were what? This type of food makes me unclean. So if a Gentile eats it, guess what the Gentile is? Unclean. 
This type of food uh, makes me dirty. Being around a Gentile because they're unclean makes me unclean. Thus, I won't be around Gentiles. And you see this separation that is, that is designed in some ways. And you know what? These restrictions offended the Gentiles. You can even see the separation in the temple because there was an outer court designed for Gentiles and they couldn't go past a certain area into the inner part of the temple compound. Now, only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies, but we're talking about two separate outer compounds that the Gentiles could only go so far. And in fact, they have found uh, inscriptions in archaeology. And let me just read them to you just to show you the intensity of this separation between Jew and Gentile. Because on this wall, there was an inscription that was dug up just a few years back. And it read this, let no Gentile, let no man of the nations go beyond this wall on pain of death. So the Jews took it seriously. No foreigner, there's another inscription found, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And so you see the intensity of separation and distinction that was set up between these two people. And so there was designed, God designed separation to set apart that nation. But then there was this concept of separation that began to be grossly misinterpreted by both Jew and Gentile. The average Jew began to view themselves as superior then, better than, more important than, the only one that God was interested in. And because they had this arrogant view of themselves, Gentiles hated Jews. In fact, that hasn't changed much through the course of human history. Gentiles still hate Jews. If you don't believe me, just come to Newark, New Jersey and stand in the airport with me when a bunch of Hasidic Jews walk by and just look at the faces of the people, watch them walk by. I've never seen a people despised as much as the Jews just for being Jews. It's incredible. It's just really fascinating to see that still working out in our day. So they were on the inside. The Jews were on the inside. The Gentiles were on the outside. Let me give you another picture just to paint this scene for us because it's hard sometimes being in the generation that we are to understand why this is so significant and why Jesus Christ is so amazing and what he accomplished here that we're reading about. Acts 21, take a look at Acts 21, verse 27. This is in Paul's day and again gives us a picture of this whole concept of separation, especially at the temple. Verse 27, Acts 21. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, seeing Paul, by the way, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, why did they say that? We get a parenthetical note by Luke because they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesians, with him in the city, whom they supposed, they didn't actually see him, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And check out the description of the next few verses. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to correct him, is that what your version says? As they were seeking to kill him. I mean, this is, this is dead serious. As they were seeking to kill him, news came 
to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I mean, it's not funny, but it's just like, goodness gracious, this is dead serious to them. You, you can pick up this separation, this hatred, this enmity that had been established by not only the, the natural separation garnered by the Mosaic law, but also a misinterpretation of what that separation was designed to accomplish. And so it makes what Jesus did in Ephesians 2, as we're talking through this, even more incredible. And that's hopefully the goal in terms of bringing that out. So the way that Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation was by rendering the Mosaic law inactive or putting it out of business so that this misinterpretation or this separation could be removed because he wants to do something brand new, uniting Jew and Gentile in one body. And so it's a very delicate topic, right? In fact, I feel like I have this conversation more than probably any other conversation. And is that is where does the law fit in the Christian life? And, and so it's a delicate conversation because in Romans 7, 12, we learn something this and, and never mistake anything I say other than an agreement with this. Nothing's wrong with the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is just. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. Don't ever mistake anything I say to say anything different than that. I totally agree with that statement, Romans 7, 12. The other thing that we've got to deal with is Jesus in Matthew 5 emphatically said that the law would not pass away until heaven and earth do. Remember the whole jot and tittle comment? That, that's there. He's talking about the law's not going to pass away. So this is a delicate situation to handle because although the law is holy, just, and good, the Bible also teaches us that it's weak in the flesh to accomplish what it could accomplish. In other words, if you could keep the law, which you'd have to do it perfectly, then you could obtain a righteousness equal with God's righteousness. And if you as a believer could keep the law, albeit perfectly, then you could obtain a level of sanctification that would be honoring and glorifying to the Lord. The problem is, is that our sin nature will not allow that to happen. And, it's, and we are weak according to the flesh. And this is why we need a righteousness outside of our own righteousness to go to heaven. That's why we have to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone to go to heaven because that's how we gain the righteousness of God. The exact righteousness he requires, Jesus Christ provided in the gospel. But it's also how we walk spiritually. We don't walk and grow spiritually by trying to keep the law. In fact, why would Jesus render it an operative in the church age if then we take it back off the shelf and try to become more holy and spiritual that way? And this is why it's so important to understand the teaching of Romans 6, 7, and 8, specifically 8, because it says that if you walk by means of the Spirit, you'll fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. You don't fulfill it by trying to keep the law. You fulfill it by walking by means of the Spirit. You see, God's got an entirely new program in place, and it's a program that works if we'll simply just trust the Lord to do that in our life. That's the whole point of the Christian life. This is why we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We don't walk by our own fleshly, reliant human strategies to become more holy, even if they sound good, smell good, look good, taste good, think that they are good, none of these activities themselves will make somebody spiritual. 
The spirit of God makes people spiritual. This is why it's so important. This is such a delicate topic, obviously. Now, go back with me to Ephesians 2, 15. We're trying to just kind of move carefully through this section. But notice how Jesus abolished the enmity. How did he abolish or render an operative the law? There's this really key phrase there. It's really easy to read right over, but he did it in his flesh. Notice that? The way that he did it, the means by which he accomplished this was in his flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have to go to another passage to help us understand that. Let's go back to Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Romans 7, the first couple of verses explains the believer's relationship to the law. This is true of a Jewish believer. This is true of a Gentile believer. This is true of any believer who's put their faith in Christ and is now a member of the body of Christ. This is true of you. This is our relationship to the law. Look at Romans 7. He uses a natural illustration. He says, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Really quickly, we understand what he's saying here. Two people married, one of the, let's use the woman in this example, her spouse dies, she's free to remarry. If she's married, her spouse has not died and she remarries, she would be considered an adulteress under the Mosaic law. I think we understand the concept. So death frees you from the law of marriage. Now I want you to see, Paul's gonna take that physical example, he's gonna now make a spiritual application, but I want you to notice now he switches the application. It's no longer the husband dying, but it's the wife dying to the husband. Watch how he switches here in verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through how? The body of Christ in his flesh that we just looked at in Ephesians. That's what we're talking about here. But notice the law didn't die. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law didn't die. Who died? You died. You died to the law. So your relationship now to the law is completely changed. This is part of what Jesus is talking about, Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. Now, why would God change your relationship to the law? Don't we need the law to govern our behavior? Don't we need the law to restrict our evil behavior? Don't we need the law to to guide us and lead us in the Christian life? No, watch this. This is what's incredible. The fact that you died to the law is not a, a, a desire of God to make you lawless. See, many people hear that. We say, I'm dead to the law. They automatically think, well, that means you think you can be lawless. That's not at all. In fact, here's the truth of it. If you and I recognize that we died to the law, we can actually, for the first time, bear fruit to God, which implies when you walk in a legalistic, law-based way, I don't care how much activity you're producing, it is unacceptable to the Lord. It will not bear fruit. Look, at, look with me at Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Why? That you may be married to another. Who? To him who was raised from the dead. Why? That we should bear fruit to God. Go back to Romans six fourteen. Same concept. For sin shall not have dominion over you. 
Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. See, if, if you as a believer place yourself under law, you will be dominated by sin. You don't believe me? Just read Romans 7, 14 to the end of the chapter. That is a man trying to be sanctified by law. Domination. Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I, don't, I do want to do, I can't do. That's a man trying to be sanctified by keeping the law. This is what we understand about the law. Jesus freed us from the demands of the law. He put the law out of business. He rendered it inoperative in our life. Why? So that we could actually bear fruit to God. And not only that, as we flip back to Ephesians chapter two, so that he can take this grand plan that he has in the church and he actually can put Jew and Gentile together, removing that natural barrier between fellowship, peace, and unity in the body of Christ. Could you imagine if your body was split down the half and, and, and your body only listened to this, the right side of your body only listened to the right side of your brain and the left side of the body only listened to the left side of your brain? You, I mean, you would be something really interesting to watch, especially on a dance floor. It would be, it would be a little awkward because we're designed to function together. We're, our body is designed to function together. If, if my, if my, uh, you know, my, my ankle bone doesn't work with my shin bone, I mean, I got problems, right? And, and so this is the whole point. There's no, it's not designed to be separation of the body. We're designed to have unity. And one of the ways Jesus had to do that, again, we're getting behind the kitchen doors here. You may have never thought about this or cared about this in your life, but this is one of the things that the finished work of Jesus Christ accomplished. And it was huge. And we may not realize that completely, but it was huge. So again, why is this so important? Well, first, Jew and Gentile are free to be at peace and in complete unity in Christ because the law is no longer this natural division or separation between them. Second, believers are not made holy by trying to keep the law. Very important. These things kind of come together in this verse. So this brings us to the third action, if you will, in this section where Jesus took to solve this separation dilemma. And you'll see that it's introduced, we're still in verse 15. You'll see this, that phrase, so as to create in himself one new man. That word so as is a purpose clause. It's for the purpose of. Why did Jesus render the law inoperative? Why did he put the law to business? So that for the purpose that he could create something new, something new and unified. To create in himself, the text says, in himself, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And to create means to produce from nothing or to form out of preexistent matter. What preexistent matter was he using? Jew and Gentile people. He's making peace. He's making one new man out of two types of people who were uh, diametrically opposed and separated. Notice again, and we can't get away from this in Ephesians. Where does he perform this creation. Look at the text. He created where? In himself, in Christ. This is God's grand plan. Jesus Christ is God's grand plan. If you don't take anything from the book of Ephesians other than that, just take this. Jesus Christ is God's plan. He's God's plan A. He didn't need a plan B. His plan A is perfect. It's found in a person Jesus Christ. Everything he does in the church age is because he is doing it in and through Jesus Christ. That is so important to to just remember. 
And that's why really our mantra here at this church is, it is finished. We, we are so thrilled with the work of Jesus Christ that we believe everything God is doing is as a result of him. And so we see it again here. It's right there in the text. Notice what he created. Again, one new man from the two. The church did not exist. And this may be shocking uh, to some, but the church did not exist in the Old Testament. The church began on, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. There's, there's uh, tons of distinctions between believers in the Old Testament and church age believers. One of which, not, not, a, not the least of which, is, is the fact that we have the permanent indwelling Holy Spirit, which we saw in chapter 1. But also all the blessings that are poured out on us in Christ that we also saw in chapter 1. Here's what's so incredible about this too, that when a Jew believes in their Messiah, when a Gentile believes in the Jewish Messiah, we're formed into one new man. There's a loss of ethnic identity. There should be. Some people still make a big deal about certain types of believers, but we lose our ethnic identity in Christ in terms of status. We are all one in Christ. The, the, as they've said, uh, people over the years have said many times, the ground at the, at the cross is level. For Jew and Gentile, they get saved the same way. We're put into the same body. We have the same privileges as anyone who trusts in Christ. And I don't care if their last name is Cohen and their family has been a priest for generations. It doesn't matter. There's a loss of ethnic identity here because our identity is no longer I'm a Gentile in Christ, but I'm in Christ. And I'm not a Jew in Christ. I'm in Christ. We're in Christ. Christ becomes our identity. And this is that one new man that he created, that identity there. Now, notice how he created. Again, he, he did it by making peace. The word make is the Greek word poeo. It just means to do any external act that produces tangible, tangible results. And we have tangible results in the body of Christ. And that brings us to our fourth action, verse 16. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Notice, uh, by the way, the, the and, and that here, verse 16, and that. So he's still giving us another purpose for why the law was rendered inoperative. This is a secondary purpose for why he rendered the law inoperative. And we see that fourth action. It was reconciliation. Both to God, reconciling both, who? Jew and Gentile to God, by the way, how, again? In one body. See, he keeps going back to this phrase, the importance of Jesus Christ's body. This is why all the heresies that developed in the first century about Jesus Christ just being a phantom, not having a real body. You know, someone, someone there is like, oh, these theologians, they're just splitting hairs. No, it's important to have good theology. It's important to have sound doctrine. It's important to understand these minutia because when you go to the word of God, there, there is a key element here that Jesus Christ's body is essential. He had to have a human body. By the way, if he doesn't have a human body, how does he die? How does he die for you? If he doesn't have a body to die, that's the point. It's so important to understand these little nuances. But when we talk about the word reconcile, it means to reestablish proper, friendly, interpersonal relations after these have been disrupted 
or broken. What's really fascinating about this word is, you know, have you ever just like in conversation, you're searching for a word and you just make one up out of the blue and you actually think it's a word? You, usually that comes out when you're playing Scrabble against someone that actually knows English and you're like, you're trying to get a triple word score and they're like, that's not a word. And like you're Googling it and you're just sure it's a word. Paul uses a word here that was not found in secular Greek anywhere. He coined his own term to describe what's going on here. If you're interested, it's apakatalasso. That's a mouthful, right? That would be a quadruple word score probably in some Scrabble games, but only used by Paul, used a couple times in the New Testament. He's building off of a word that means reconciliation. And so this, this compound word, the distinction between what Paul is saying here and what kind of the normal use of reconciliation seems to be the restoration of a relationship of peace, which has been disturbed. In other words, there was a, there was a relationship at one point that was friendly, there, that, and now it's being restored. And so as you think back through history, when was God and man in a friendly relationship? You just kind of start flipping your pages back in the Bible. You're like, ah, it's not there. It's not there. It's not there. It's not there until you get where? Genesis 1 and 2. Right before the fall, we, we learned that, that man was in a friendship with God, that, man, that, that God actually came down and walked through the cool of the garden, it says, with Adam and Eve. There was a friendship, an undisturbed relationship there. But since that point in time, sin has always been a barrier between God and man. Sin always produces death, always produces death, and death by definition is separation, And so there needed to be somebody that can reconcile. We needed a mediator. And contrary to the teaching of religious gurus all over the world, there's only one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. We don't need any other mediator, mediatrix, which is the female version of a mediator, as some religions teach. We need a mediator. We need somebody that can pull us together from a place of enmity with God to a place of friendship. And you know who did it and you know who's able to do it? Jesus Christ and him alone. And that's what we're looking at in this verse. This is another reason that, that, that Jesus uh, abolished or rendered inoperative this natural distinction so he could bring us all together, reconciled to God. Again, notice how, he, how God accomplishes it. It is in one body and it's through the cross work of Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. It always goes back to the work of Jesus Christ. And this is why we try not to get too far away from this teaching uh, and anything that we do in the church because it's so central to everything that goes on before. It's so central on how we proceed in the Christian life. The cross has got to be the center of what we do, how we think. It's, it's the center of the benefit that everything God wants to give you. And I brought this out a second ago, but again, notice the emphasis on Christ's body. You know, Hebrews chapter 10, let's flip there. I'm doing a lot of flipping this morning, uh, more than I normally do. But some of these verses are just incredible to see how the Bible fits together. Uh, you know, glove, not glove and fist, hand, fi- hand, Hand in glove. Thank you. One of these days I'll get that. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Notice again the emphasis on the body. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. That is a weird statement to put into the book of Hebrews. Why is a body so important? We start tying together everything that we've looked at, Ephesians. Go back, hold your finger there because I'm coming right back to Hebrews 10. But look at verse 15. How did he abolish or render an operative law? He did it in his flesh. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God. How? In one body. See, this, this body concept is, is important. In fact, we go on in chapter 10, we keep reading down, but verse 10, but by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of what? The body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is so important to understand. It's like putting puzzle pieces together. They all fit in God's grand salvation plan. Jesus had to have a body. He had to be able to die. And through the result of his death, all of these good things result as, as a benefit from it. And you know what? I think we're going to spend the rest of our Christian life growing in our understanding of what all Jesus Christ's work accomplished for you. Because you know, when you get saved, all you know is, oh, I got someone that paid for my sins. <laughs> and, and, and amen. Like, oh, that's a great thing to understand. But then you start to realize everything else his finished work did for you. And it just is mind-blowing. It is the ultimate infomercial, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. And that's how we live the Christian life. And this is why Jesus Christ, the more you find out about him, the more exciting he becomes. And the more you find out about what his work accomplished, the more uh, of a mindset of worship of him that you get into, because you realize Jesus truly is all in all. Jesus truly is all you need. And we need to be encouraged and reminded of that over and over and over again. And so that brings us to the fifth action that's mentioned uh, in this passage. And that's also in verse 16. He says, thereby putting to death the enmity. Putting to death means to slay or to kill outright. And so by reconciling these two groups, Jew and Gentile, Jesus put to death the hostility, if you will, between the two groups, believing Jew believing Gentile. Now, he didn't do that by annihilating it, wiping it out, because he didn't wipe out the law, but he did it by putting it out of business. He, he basically, the, the whole thing that was creating distinctions and separation, he put it out of business so he can bring forward peace. And so we're going to read more about that here in verse 17 when we get there. But this is why, by the way, you wonder why Paul used to get so hot under the collar about circumcision and law keeping. And you'd be like, man, Paul, just calm down, dude. You know, did someone, you know, put something in your Cheerios this morning? Like you're all fired up. Just relax. It's going to be okay. This is why he gets fired up because he understands this concept. And if you keep introducing law into the church, you're going to create a natural separation. And you know what? When you have separation, as we're going to look at next week, when Jesus Christ is about a building project, the worst thing you can have in a building project is joints that don't meet and separation in the foundation. They're called cracks because then you can't build. You can't go anywhere. And so this is why I think Paul was so passionate about these things. Again, there's no second class member in the church of Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile, we're all on the same footing. Verse 17, Jesus is said to have come and preached peace, not only to you who are far off, but to those who were near. And so the he clearly is Jesus Christ. He preached a message. What did he preach? Well, he preached peace. 
He, he preached this, this, the opposite of war and dissension. This, this togetherness is what he was preaching. And we noticed that he extended this preaching to both Jew and Gentile. So it kind of begs the question, when did he do that? Well, we see early on um, that, this, uh, that this peace actually had two components. There was peace between Jew and Gentile, which we've been looking at, but also peace between men and God. And that happened, obviously, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished in the gospel. So to whom did Jesus preach? Well, it says that he preached to both Jew and Gentile. He uses the description, those who are far off and those who are near. And so it begs the question, when did he do this? Well, he preached the message to those who were near um, throughout his earthly life. And, And especially, I believe, the 40 days following his resurrection, when he was updating them on his program, if you will, and his plan for the church. We see that in Acts 1, 1 through 3. So this would have covered those who were near but how did he preach to those who are far off? You ever thought about that? Best I can come up with and the best that others that I read could come up with is that this is Jesus's ministry of preaching through the apostles and prophets. In fact, if we go to 2 Corinthians 5, this whole concept of reconciliation in verse 20, it says it was as if God was pleading through us. Jesus Christ pleading the message of peace through us. And so in some instances, Jesus is still preaching peace. He's preaching it through the members of the body of Christ who are communicating this message to others. And we get to verse 18 as kind of a conclusion. We have access, verse 18, through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. For, again, it's going to further explain and expand why Christ is able to communicate this good news about Peace, the the word for can mean because or so that. Um, So that because we we have access now. And what is access? It means to have the right to approach. means the ability to approach. And the term was commonly used of of an audience or of a right of approach to someone uh, who was a high official or a monarch. Formerly, access to God came how? Especially for the, the Gentile. Came through Judaism came through the temple system. It came through the priesthood. It came through sacrifices. Now, as a result of Jesus's finished work, everything's different. We know this from the story of his crucifixion, because what happened on those three dark hours when he was on the cross, the veil was split in two, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom, which indicated we now have complete, utter access to God. You know, if you tried to make an appointment with President Biden today, you would not be able to get to see him. But if you were friends with Hunter Biden, which I wouldn't recommend, but if you were friends with Hunter Biden, you could get access to the president. You could get access through his son. I've got a friend that's, that's a former Secret Service agent, and he worked uh, for four administrations. Anyways, he worked for multiple administrations. His last administration before he retired was with President Obama's administration. And they would often put some of the biggest, scariest, strongest Secret Service agents right outside the door of the Oval Office to limit access to the Oval Office. And he actually witnessed these guys, people coming up, running up in haste, like they've got to get in the Oval Office. He witnessed these big guys step right in front of the door and say, can I help you? They're limiting access. But you know what? When the Obama girls came running down the hallway to the Oval Office, you know what those big, tough, scary guys did? They got out of the way and they opened the door and they had access. Why? 
because they were his children. They were his daughters. And in the same way Jesus Christ has access to the Father, you now have access. Let me close with a verse in Romans chapter 5. Go with me to Romans chapter 5 because very important to understand that your access is not dependent on your behavior. It's dependent upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says this, through whom, again, Jesus, same thing we're looking at in Ephesians 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What I love about that is that word we have is a perfect tense verb. It means you have it and you, you continue to have it. Your access is ongoing, nonstop because of Jesus Christ. And as we close, you know, I often get questions sometimes, especially in, in these types of passages, you know, saying something to the effect of, John, where's the application? What can, I, what can I take from this sermon this week and how can I apply it? What can I, what can I do with it? And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know in this passage. This is pretty theological. It's describing the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. But I will tell you this, if you come to a Bible passage and you're not sure what to do with it in terms of how do I do this on Monday morning? How do I do this on Wednesday afternoon? Let me encourage you with this. How about just sitting back and your application be, can be something like this. God, you're awesome. Turn it into an opportunity to worship. If that's all we get out of today is because Jesus accomplished this, you know what? Jesus, you're awesome. That's my application. And so run with that this week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your son. I know we, we only ever scratch the surface on how amazing and wonderful he is. We only scratch the surface on, ama- on how amazing and wonderful his accomplishment was. But thank you, Lord, for any kind of further understanding that we may have gained this morning, any further gratefulness for the Lord Jesus that we may have gained this morning. We pray that that would become more real to us as we live and traverse on this earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.